You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research here at the University of Victoria. Well, as promised, here's the part two of the Colleen-Mario combo interview that we started last week. Enjoy! This whole subject, like you said, of vulnerability and connection absolutely overlaps with psychology, which brings us to you. Yes. Can you tell our listeners exactly what your program is and what you're doing right at the moment, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so I'm in the Cognition and Brain Sciences program, technically, which is a a sub-department in psychology, and it sounds super neurologistic, but it's not. It's uh, not for me anyway. For some, there are certain folks in the department who are very brain-focused, who do fMRI and um, EEG research and and take pictures of brains and stuff, and I'm not quite there. Uh, I'm in a different sort of arm, more in the cognition side. So okay. the term cognition is just a fancy way to say thinking, really. Yes. I think about like recognition or things like that. Like when you recognize somebody, it means that you've seen them before. So you are cognizing them. You remember them. The okay. re part is that you're doing it again. So like ah, I suppose okay. you could say like the first time we met, I cognized you. And the next time I, we saw each other, I recognized you. Oh, okay. I got you. That's how I like That's a great way it. to look at it. Never I, thought of it that way. And so that's what cognition is. It's right. just, it's it's the way we think. And so, the things I'm super interested in within cognition are things like memory and false memory, and that leads into things like metacognition. So thinking about thinking, okay, uh, which I do too much as it is. <laughs> I and think so, I do too. <laughs> yeah, so it's sort of a perfect uh, uh, department for me to be in. And so when I started to get into psychology during undergrad, I had a great advisor who was a learning and memory researcher and still is. I don't know why I said was. Um, And so his name's Matt Kelly, and uh, so he's at Lake Forest College. And I don't know what I sort of got into through talking to and having courses, taking courses from Matt is that I was just, I was super interested and very into how we remember, how we think. And I think that it's it's, it's what draws me in. And, And so from there, I graduated and I, you know, we were talking about what the next step might be. Right. And he was saying, you should go to grad school, go to grad school. And I said, I would love to. And so <laughs> nice. I'd, love, I'd love to read more and be a nerd for a longer period of time. So, or for a long, really a long period of time. Nice. Uh, as, uh, <laughs> that's what profs are, right? They're career, right. career nerds. <laughs> and so. And they're proud of it. They love it. <laughs> and I, I would love to be it someday. So I came here, I, you know, I sent out a bunch of applications, a couple came back and looked at some things and visited some places. And uh, I came here and I met my supervisor, Steve Lindsay, and my co-supervisor, Liz Brimacombe, and they were excellent. And I met their people and their students love them. And I said, I, I think this is going to be a great fit. And so came over, it is a great fit. And it's just sort of gone in from there. So what I've gotten into since arriving has mostly been eyewitness memory. So that's one arm of uh, research that Steve and Liz have conducted together for a number of years now. I've sort of got two projects ongoing at the moment. Okay. In one, we are trying to... So I, I should step back. Most of the research centers around eyewitness identification, actually. Okay. So the concept is, after somebody witnesses a crime, and this is a an uninvolved spectator who happens to see something, so yes. just a, a pure eyewitness... Often the police will interview them about what happened and then later bring the person back and show them a photo lineup and try to have them choose the actual criminal. Right. Okay. And so there's a whole 
slew of questions and issues that come in when you start to play with all the different little variables that can happen in there from the actual witnessing to the interview to the time between to the discussions that the police have and how hard they suggest something to the construction of the lineup itself. Yes. So all of these things have been studied ad nauseum and we still don't really have definitive answers for most things. Psychologists have tried to sort of science-ize the way that that's done, and, and many precincts have adopted this nice, we call it operationalized, version of lineup administration. Ah. And so the term operationalize is, some, is a term psychologists use for sort of make objective. So in psychology, there's all these things that you want to measure but that are totally humanistic. And so it's really difficult to measure how happy somebody is, right? right? So right. you can't just say, how happy are you? They're going to say, well, happy how? What do you mean? Like today I feel fine. Generally not so fine. You know, it's a, it's a totally It's not a tangible thing. measurement. Exactly. Right. And so one of the many things that some and many psychologists try to do is operationalize things like that. We're trying to objectivize a measure of, in my example right now, happiness, right? So you would ask some people a hundred questions and synthesize those in some way to come out with the thing and say, okay, this person is moderately happy. Uh, on okay. a scale from one okay. to a hundred, they're 75 or whatever it is. That's operationalized. And so where was I? Let's see. Well, you were talking about the lineups. And yeah, I have so to say we, that for everybody listening, I, I know that how I relate to that, it's fortunately I haven't had to be a part of a lineup, either the witness or in the lineup and mm. haven't had that experience, but I have had the experience of being caught in the criminal minds and law and order TV show marathons at nauseum. And there are so many shows now where they try to be, I think, as realistic as possible and show that there are many flaws in how an eyewitness see, sees mm. things. I used to think that, oh yeah, I can totally trust what I saw. Now I'm like, maybe I couldn't. I'm doubtful now. So, yeah, you're, you're getting a little bit into meta memory and metacognition and false memory in general. So yeah. like the question is, can you really trust your memory in certain cases? Yeah. And then a, a whole nother question there is, can other people trust your memory? And I'll get into that in a second. You mentioned the process in general. So when you're talking about how it looks on the TV show and how they, they seem to be suggesting that, yeah, witnesses aren't all that great at, yeah. at, it some, at their, their quote unquote job as witnesses sometimes. In the early 2000s, a huge research project was published that detailed the number of and the nature of thousands of, ex of recent exonerations for formerly imprisoned criminals okay. based on new evidence. And so in okay. most cases, it was things like DNA evidence that right. came together and released somebody. Uh, there's a guy named Ronald Cotton who was wrongfully imprisoned for a long time, and DNA evidence eventually exonerated him, and now... He and the woman who wrongfully accused him by choosing him out of a lineup tour together and discuss the questions surrounding oh, um, wow. around eyewitness identification. So that's a really cool story. If you want to Google Ronald Cotton, he's, I totally do know. he's an interesting guy. Uh, and then this other thing is the Innocence Project. And yes. so when that was published, they found out there are just thousands of people who were put in jail by eyewitness identification evidence, so being picked out of a lineup who later were exonerated because they were totally not – they just weren't the person who was there. And so – And it wasn't because someone was doing it maliciously and lying. This wasn't about framing someone. This was someone exactly. totally convinced that that was who they saw exactly. and it was wrong. And so what psychologists have found since then is that there are many, many reasons why that was going on. There are <sighs> – you can you can construct a lineup completely unfairly, obviously. There are numerous issues we come into when we start to try to recognize people. Right. And there are numerous ways that the police can lean someone toward a certain 
member. So the way a lineup is constructed is that there is one suspect. So you'll have, say, six people in a photo array, and the police will say, is the, is the person here, and if so, where? There are three possible responses there. If there, actually, there's, there, there are five. We'll, be, we'll, be, we'll say it like that. So you, you can have the person actually be in the lineup or not, and so that sort of separates, separates it into two groups. If the real guy is there, then you can pick him correctly, you can falsely pick somebody else, or you can reject the lineup, in this case, falsely, okay. totally, and say he's just not there. If you pick a different dude than the actual suspect, that does not it's, it's essentially like rejecting the lineup, because lineups are always filled with people who look like the criminal but aren't suspected of anything, okay. because you can't have that kind of diff- like, well, did they choose number two or number six? We know it could be either one. And then they, okay. you know, that. Gotcha. It just. It, it wouldn't do any good. It really messes with the usefulness of, right. the, of the task. I never realized that, but that makes total sense. Yeah. It, it, that's one of the first cool things that I learned. <laughs> what they'll do is they'll write out a description. This is to construct a fair lineup. They'll write out the description of the criminal or the, the suspect rather. And they will find other photographs of people who match that description and then fill the lineup out with them. Then on the other side, it, you could have the wrong person, right? So then that person could be chosen wrongly, hence yeah. the Innocence Project. Yeah. And then you've got all the other ones, and, and they would they could be correctly rejected, or a, a different uh, foil person could be chosen, et cetera, et cetera. So that's sort of the lineup construction bit. And then there's the method of administration of the lineup. So there's a whole lot of research on how it should be done, whether it should be six photos right at once, whether they should be flipped through like playing cards sort of, where you would go one to the next and mm-hmm. you can't you can't go back. And then some, some uh, districts in Great Britain show little videos of the people, so they show them walking so you can get their gait a little bit. Ah. So there's all kinds of questions about what is reasonable for police precincts to use, given some precincts' limitations of funding or however it works or size or you know just general availability of certain technologies, and how they just how they're going to go after it and how they want to, and, and whether we're, we're actually suggesting that things that make everything better or that just sort of shift everything along the same kind of line. So I'm getting a little too too deep into it. No, it's actually really interesting. What comes to mind for me is the idea of what would make me not choose the right person? Like what are some of the things that can interfere with how I remember? There's a hundred ways, right? So I'll I'll just do a couple. So we we could sit down and if I were a cop, I'd say, all right, which guy do you think it is here? Is it, uh, you think it might be five or, or just the vaguest suggestion? If you say six and I go, mm, you sure? Things like that can really affect people. And so then, you know, oh, if, if, I, if you go, well, it's number six. And I go, mm, you sure it's six? And you go, eh, maybe three. Then three wasn't your choice. I, you, your choice was six. And so I, you were led. I sort of led you into three because that was my suspect. And so okay. when a cop goes into it, it's it's tough for them to be... And understandably so. It's oh, tough. yeah. It's, it's a tough – It's you have you've to got be, your guy and yeah. you believe that he's your guy. There's a reason you're constructing this lineup because you have some kind yeah. of evidence. And so there's actually a whole lot of research now that suggests that blind administration is the best way. So uh, what that means is you get a different cop to actually administer the lineup so okay. that they don't even do anything you know, nonverbal. Like they don't lean in when the person says the wrong thing or – um, oh, right. Or, I mean, there are so many things we do non-verbally. All that kind yeah. of stuff. Okay, so that's one way. Okay, uh, Another way I could I could uh, get you to choose someone who you may not in fair circumstances is surround them with people who don't look like them. So if uh, – in a most extreme example, if I had one guy of one race and then five around him of a different race who are not the race of the actual perpetrator, then you're obviously going to pick the guy – 
who who fits the description the most. Yes. And so because there's no other nobody else fits the description, so of course exactly. yeah, that's no the extreme example. No one's example. even close. Right. But you could even have like a guy with a say. You know, I got mugged the other day by a guy with a big bushy mustache, and I show you six photographs. One has a big bushy mustache, and the others either, you know, one has a beard, one has no facial hair, one has a pencil mustache or yeah. something like that. I'm going to pick the big bushy guy because yeah. that's what I remember most about his face. Right. Those are two really easy examples of, of, yes. of easy ways to really mess with people. And then, you know, I sort of hinted at the other race effect and all the different – there's like a thousand – different things that we can get into with that. But the, the basic takeaway is that there is much, much research on facial identification and fa- memory for faces that suggests that people in general, painting with broadest yes. strokes, are better at identifying and separating out differences between faces within their own race than those in other races. Well, it, yeah, that makes sense. There's a hundred theories to why, too, right? So It doesn't mean something. Um, you're not saying anyone's being racist. It's just the way our minds are working or our recognition. You're better at it, simply yeah. enough. And it's in, in most cases, it seems to just be an exposure thing, sort of right. an expertise thing. And there are different featural differences that establish differences between people in different races. Yeah. What so- certain people use to distinguish faces from one another may not work for those of another race, and that's part of what makes it so difficult sometimes. Well, and I got to believe, too, that the level of trauma that someone experienced in an event oh, sure. There's a good, would yeah, completely another, impact how I remember something. Another thing that could totally screw up your eyewitness identification, yes. So if you've never been around a crime before, if you've never been in any, you know, right. uh, the stress of it can totally screw you up. There's also a, lar- a lot of research on gun focus. So if you're if you're robbed or if you're uh, in a bank heist or whatever it is, when the guy pulls a gun out, you're watching the gun for sure. Yeah. And so that really hurts people's ability to identify faces because they stop looking at them. They just watch the gun, make sure it's not pointed at them. So that's so there interesting. too. Okay. So now you've, you've got all this. What does yeah, that take yeah. so you to? What are you doing? The grand point of all that is that there's a ton of stuff out there and there's a thousand ways you could go with it. But most of that is pointed towards helping witnesses become better at being witnesses. Nice. So what we're trying to do is help investigators on the other side. So we've got two projects that do that. Nice. The first is focused on attempting to find some kind of objective measure for whether a witness is good or bad. There are hundreds of attempts at this as well. Uh, A lot of physical measurements and things like uh, sweating, sweaty palms or eye twitching or where your eyes focus and all that kind of stuff. Most of it has come out with meager results at okay. best. What we're hoping might work soon now is that uh, it, it seems that it's an individual differences thing. So certain people are better at recognizing other faces than others are. And that I think that you could say that pretty yeah. safely. We all have a lot of individual differences in our memory ability and our recognition ability, et cetera, et cetera. What we're thinking is maybe certain people are going to just be naturally better witnesses. And so the, what we're trying to figure out in one study is – whether we can distinguish that in any way. So we basically just have people pretend to be witnesses in a bunch of situations and see whether certain folks are reliably and through time better than other folks. Well, it would make sense to me because there's different types of intelligences. We all have different combinations and talents, and some right. people are just observationally brilliant. Right. They might be the ones that are even struggling in school to try in, in, in the math and science subjects. And I've seen this in children that have trouble in school, but observationally, they are so good observing, seeing what's going on. It's really interesting. So that's one study. The other one is sort of a check to see whether investigators do actually have trouble 
distinguishing good witnesses from poor witnesses. And so what we do is we give them each type and then see how they react differently to each one. Nice. And so what we typically find is that they can tell the difference. They know we give them some witnesses who see things really well and some who see things really poorly. And we do that by showing the witnesses good or poor things. In the end, we're curious whether the investigators will notice that difference and then what they'll do with it. And so what we find is that they do notice the difference, but they don't seem to internalize that difference and actually use it to change their personal confidence in their choice of suspect. And okay. so what that means is that – or the, sorry, they do use it, but they they use the witness's information but not their opinion on the quality of the witness's information. Okay. So let's say I give you a lineup. You pick the guy I wanted you to pick, but it doesn't seem like you actually saw anything very well. I'm going to be just as affected by you as I would by – another person who did see things really well and still chose my suspect. Mm. And so what that means is people who don't see things as well are dramatically affecting the courses of our investigations here. Right. And so if that's going on in the real world, in the real world, it's, it's bad. Right. It's something that I think, you know, if we can help officers be better at, we would be helping everybody, of course. And so the next step really in my research is to see whether officers have these kinds of issues as well, or whether certain aspects of their training lead them to perform completely differently. I think they will, but it's interesting that non-officers are having this kind of problem. I think it's an important scientific question anyway. And that yeah. gets into something I, what I teased earlier, and that yeah. is that our witnesses don't often realize whether they got, whether we showed them the good view or the poor view. And so later when they identify, sometimes they're certain, sometimes they're not so certain. And that's where it gets tough to remember, to trust your own memory sometimes, whether right. it's true or false. It looks like that guy, but I'm not sure Oh my gosh, that kind yeah. of a situation. And so investigators are doing that for other people every single day. Anyone who interviews and administers lineups on a constant basis is always trying to judge the quality of the memory of that other person. And that and that's a skill and to, it's, to be learned, right? That's what we're saying, yeah. yeah. And and so it's it's a skill that UVic undergrads have not learned. And, uh, <laughs> we'd like to, to meet some actual police officers and, and see whether they've learned it and yes. if not, what we can do. Does every university that offers psychology, would they all be having a team that does this particular Oh, yeah, no, study? no, no. So there's... You know, there's a set of eyewitness memory researchers around the world, like okay. you were saying, with theater and drama for the young. It's yes. probably a bit wider than than I'd imagine. Theater yeah, and that drama one's for the just a really is. new niche, I guess. Yeah, and so this there's probably you know there's like five or six really big names, and then a smattering of their students around and other people who've sort of gotten okay. into it since then, and they've been at it for a long time. There's been research on eyewitness memory quality and things since I mean there's you know there's old really old things that are that you go that's totally eyewitness memory but oh yeah it's been studied with earnest probably since the 70s or the 80s yes. so there's a lot of people who are working on it at this point it's been going for a while but really with with renewed vigor I think after the innocence project in the early 2000s right. it's only at those places that you'd find eyewitness memory researchers and research so your work of, has a worldwide impact because it's not that everybody's doing it. There's if it works out, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, and then I'll I'll get published and go on to fame and fortune. I nice. Suppose. Okay, yeah. great. Oh well, that's perfect. Well, actually, it's really interesting because I know we're out of time at this point, but I am. I would love to hear more when your research is done. I'm always inviting my guests like, hey, will you come back and yeah. tell? Because this is like really intriguing to me because like I said, I'm, I, I know I kind of laughed it off, but I am fascinated by all of the crime investigation 
shows and more mm. about the psychology of and picturing myself in that in those circumstances. And mm. it fascinates me because it just makes me question everything. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. Oh. Well, this is great, Mario. Yeah, it's not too often that you and I are in the booth at the same time. So yeah. we're, we're going to be doing the thing on the fun drive on March 18th. We're going to be doing it live. We might even throw a little bit of music in there, which is unusual for the two of us. I think so. What the heck? It's yeah. only half an hour, right? Could and throw yes, on one or two. Yeah, pitching everybody for a little bit of funds if you like the show. It helps support. It will, the, the capital funds for the, this great radio station here. I love CFUV. It's really well run. Love the people here. and It's, it's an impressive place for sure. Yeah. And, and the capital fund is generally used on things like uh, new equipment especially. Yeah. So, That'll be great. Um, if you think we sound good now, just wait. Yes, we'll sound even better. <laughs> so great. Well, I guess that's where we just end it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, well. Um, See you later. Um, good, Can't wait for your next interview. Yeah, good luck. And, uh, <laughs> Godspeed. And <laughs> <laughs> Again, thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV.